coming up on Art Palace. These glazes are so important. Wars have been fought over that glaze. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Irig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Ben Clark, owner of Queen City Clay. Well, what 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 all do you want to know? I mean, what what, do I what should know? we focus on? Because uh, we could we could start well, with the material that I work in. We well, could talk about what the shop does and how we collaborate mm-hmm. sometimes with the yeah. I mean, we could do well. That would be the sensible thing to do, right? Is right. To talk about clay because you're you know you've got a clay shop and all that. But what I really want to ask you about is jump rope. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's what we're really going to talk about is jump roping this whole time. Because you were a jump roper. I was you, a jump roper. But you just said your doctor doesn't, you, you're not, are you now allowed to jump rope again or? Well, okay. So I had surgery December 6th and I'm back to where I can move around. Or, yeah. You know, I've got almost full range of motion, but then uh, most people who are wanting to get back to their normal life do not work where I work or right. uh, have the interests that I have. And so when I, you know, I said, okay, when, when can I do handstands? When I going to do backflips? When can I like <laughs> jump rope? And you know, they just looked at me like, who are you? And I said, no, for real. I want to, I asked the doctor, he said that he would get me back to the shoulder I had in high school. So really? that's what I expect, you know? And, uh, so they started working on me to where I'm putting a bunch of pressure on it and stuff like that. So they said that within a month or so, You'll be back. Yeah, I'll be back to doing the basics, but they oh. apparently my bicep is attached in a different way than it used to be. Weird. So yeah, so building that back up huh. is a problem, but I I am gonna get there. Okay. And uh, so we, okay, so before we, we're totally gonna talk about clay, we will. But how did you start <laughs> jump roping? Did that because that came before clay, right? Oh uh, well, yeah, way before clay. Okay. Um. So the my fifth grade teacher was a. Uh, a coach, a jump rope coach, because the American Heart Association would hire all of these teachers to start teams, right? Jump rope for heart. Everybody right. remembers that. And we were demonstration well, old teams. people remember that. Like right, us. exactly. Old people. <laughs> Probably. I mean, do they still do it? I or? think they do. Oh, okay. I, so you know, even last year I saw a few schools do it. But, oh, okay. Um, but if you think about the when you look across the country and there are tons of places that just have no money. And so a fancy soccer program or whatever, a lacrosse team that is out of reach, but a jump rope is super cheap. You don't need any special shoes or anything, right? You just do it barefoot outside. Um, and so that type of thing, we were promoting that because that's what we did. And, uh, it's better for your heart than just about anything. And so that we started, just kind of spreading the word, going from school to school and doing these little mm. hour-long demonstrations. Double dutch, single rope, endurance type stuff, that some of the stuff you see boxers do. And uh, pretty soon there were 10,000 teams across the United oh, wow. States all doing these demonstrations. And so we would uh, have camps where you'd go in the summer and you'd try different tricks and learn from each other. And pretty soon 
you're competing against each other and then going to different countries and showing them. And, and now it's everywhere. They've met with the Olympic committee several times. It might be an Olympic sport here pretty soon. And, um, yeah, so I, I just got started because my teacher was Hmm. one of those guys. And when you get to high school and you're going to Germany twice a year and getting to travel around, do these huge performances in front of 5,000 people and you get free clothes and bags. And (laughs) I mean, we thought it was the greatest thing ever. Sure. Uh, My sister was in second grade and she was performing at the white house for the president. And so I was, I was small. I mean, I was, really short and uh i'm still (laughs) only five eight you know but back then i was i was teeny and so i played soccer i was passionate about it but just not big enough to compete not strong enough to compete in that but in jump rope i i could jump high and i had good shoulder endurance and so and my team was one of the best in the world already so to do anything with the older kids you just had to get good kind of fast yeah and so i worked my butt off and uh and then pretty soon we were all over the world doing all kinds of fun things. That's so crazy. That's so, I just remember there was just such a weird thing. Like when, you know, you started working with me and it was like, Oh, and he's a, like a international jump rope champion or something. <laughs> I don't know. Is that true? Are you an international jump rope champion? I don't even remember if that's. So I was a two time world champion. Uh, but the okay. thing about jump rope is, Uh, you know, when they're trying to do these huge competitions, Mm -hmm. uh, there was infighting between, you know, um, West coast, uh, teams and other teams. And, um, so the first world championships I did, I didn't feel like it was the best in the world. Okay. I won and I can say I was world champion, but then the next one was all the first world championships they ever had were all of the organizations everywhere oh, okay. got together and formed the international ropes giving organization. And this was their first world championships in Sydney, Australia. And I won that one. And, um, so then I felt like, okay, you've earned that this was one. legit. This you know? is a legit world championship. Right. And, and I've won national championships and, and, uh, we did junior Olympics and stuff like that. Okay. But, um, but no, compared to what the sport is now, I don't think, I don't think with the skills I had back then I could compete with the kids that are doing it now. They yeah. are doing things that I can't even comprehend. I mean, yeah. they're just unbelievable. That's crazy. Yeah. So how did, then how, okay, so we'll leave jump roping behind. <laughs> Since I just had to talk about it. Uh, so how, how, um, how did clay start? Clay start? Well, I, I mean, not like the history of clay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like, uh, no, like start with the formation of the earth. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so fifth grade apparently was a magic year for me because uh, this is the same year. Yes. So That's I had the, our local potter, Scott Schaefer, came to our elementary school and did a little demo because we had an old log cabin at our school. Right. And so mm-hmm. uh, every year, the fifth graders would get to go down, stay overnight in this cabin. And they teach you how to make butter and stuff like you are a pioneer, which was we thought was the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And um, and he came and he was did a demo with, on the wheel, and I was floored. I thought it was really cool to watch. But then you just kind of forget about it. And then when I got into college, I just took a class. Um, I saw a pottery class, and I thought, okay, I got a couple credits. I got a fill, so I tried it, and it was like instantaneous. The first time I tried, I I just wanted to do it all the time. And so I took it every semester of college and 
um, didn't take it seriously as like mm-hmm. a career, you know? And so I, I majored in creative writing cause that's a much more uh, well, lucrative sure. career. You know, everyone sure. knows that. <laughs> That's a real, it's, it's something every parent wants to hear. That's right. I'm, I'm, look, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I've, I've chosen a practical <laughs> career path in, in creative writing as opposed to pottery or jump. Yeah. Roping. My fallback is pottery. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and so I, I got my degree in that, but then after college, it became very obvious that I had to stay with clay. And so I ended up going to grad school and, um, and then doing an apprenticeship with that same guy who came to the school in fifth grade and did a year long professional apprenticeship with him, which taught me all kinds of stuff. And then uh, moved to Cincinnati. Did you have any other kind of artistic things you were interested in though when you were a kid? Like, did you draw or do anything else? No. So that is, here's my story for everyone out there who doesn't feel like they have any artistic ability. Uh, I still drawing, I know it's a learned skill, but in school there are kids who can draw. They just they come out it's of true. they come out of the womb and they get to school and they just draw. Yeah, and they're amazing at it. Yeah, and I so I you look at that and you just think, well, I'll never be an artist because you can't do that. And in painting, it was the same way. I love to paint, but I am not a good painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I had taken multiple classes in that. It just didn't, the drive wasn't there, but with clay, you take nothing, right. And then you make this bowl or a cup or whatever. And so that again is just this little sketch. It's like learning to draw. And then how are you going to alter that cup? How are you going to change the surface? And every single little step you learn is physical and it's super fun. Mm-hmm. And so I just it stuck with me forever. And then as soon as that happens, you just get tons of ideas. I don't care if you don't even see yourself as an idea person. It's just natural. Oh, I can make a bowl. What kind of bowl do I want to make? And it's the next step. So even though I've never felt like an artist um, in clay, I feel like I can live in that realm mm-hmm. and I can make decisions and I can even help other people get to a good point. And see that with everything else, I I couldn't do that. But I, I in grad school, I did really enjoy learning to talk about painting and drawing mm-hmm. and sculpture and all of that, and learn what I could provide to the artist as far as being a viewer looking at that and and saying what my emotive response was and my limited academic knowledge of the the painted surface. You know. Yeah, that's a, that's a something actually. It's it's kind of funny, like when I started here and we, they were sort of teaching me about like different like approaches to gallery, you know, experiences and how we talk with the visitors about art. And at a certain point I was like, Oh yeah. Like I got this. I've been in, in in, like so many critiques. Like, yeah, that's what this is. Like you're just talking about a critique and I've done this for like hours and hours and hours of my life. Like you're telling me like, Oh, you know, you're just going to, somebody's going to throw, throw something on the wall and you're going to have to talk about it. And that's the experience. And you just get really good at that of like, yeah, let's talk about this. Right. God, I love critiques. I could go to a critique like every day. Well, and for a long time, because I started out without that drawing skill and everything, I honestly felt like I had nothing to add to a critique because I was <laughs> the person, like most people, who will look at a picture of a Rothko, right, and go, Psh, 
I could do that, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you don't understand what goes into that you don't, and, until you're standing in front of one and you have some background uh, yeah. with painting. And then you think, my God, uh, you know, it, it just opens your eyes. And so at learning a little bit of that and just being able to say, OK, I'm in front of this painting or this drawing or whatever, and here's what I'm paying attention to and what's talking to me, what's speaking to me and, and, um, how I feel about it. And those basic things, when you let that out, it does something, you know, and you feel like, okay, my voice does have some benefit. Right. Well, I remember, it's funny that you, uh, kind of bring up that, like that, uh, I could do that attitude because I remember you talking about a ceramic piece once here with me, we were walking through and you're looking at this, uh, piece and I, I i it was a japanese artist and i don't remember yeah who it was at this point so i apologize but uh i just remember it was one that probably most people would have that reaction to like yeah. this looks like a pile of clay like this right. does not look like anything it looks like a rock basically like it's just a big lump yeah and you were just like oh this is so like crazy like <laughs> what's going on here is like nuts like that the, the way they had to make this is so so hard and like you went in and i was just like oh wow like i mean like Look, I'm I subscribe to the whole like Duchampian theory that like basically the artists all they have to do is point their finger at something and say it's art, and we all have to like basically take it for art. Right. You know, I, you don't have to like it, but you have to kind of accept it as art, and then it's up to you to go like, yeah, I like it or I don't like it or whatever. And so it's like I don't really stop and think a lot about it, you know, in that kind of way. But I still, it was a piece that I probably hadn't thought a lot of and it was fun to watch you be so passionate about it because you were seeing all this other stuff that i would never have noticed and i would never have known about it just because i don't know enough about ceramics and how they work well and that all that background you learn makes a huge difference you know in in being able to see that and for me I remember um, learning problem solving and kind of an artistic process in that I saw a sculpture where a person had, you look outside this landscape and there's this giant cube sitting Mm -hmm. on the ground and it's the dirt, like the layers of dirt and then grass on top of it and right beside it is where it was cut out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you think, oh, that's, that's cool. Well, no. Try and do that, right? <laughs> yeah, with- Try and make a perfect cube come out of the ground. Yeah. The process that you have to use to, to show that visually is so ridiculously complicated and so hard to do well that all of a sudden you go, okay, all right, now I get it. You know, Start with a problem, work through it. What do I want to convey with this? And, and, and if you do it really well, there, there can be this beautiful thing where it doesn't even occur to people that it was hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, kind of comparing it to like a Rothko or sort of color field paintings. And, you know, I remember the first few times I tried to make something kind of like minimalist and austere, I realized like, oh, this is hard. Yeah. Like, because there's no way to disguise all your mistakes. And you got to say a whole bunch of stuff with less stuff. (laughs) I mean, there's just... But yeah, it's like, you know, when you're dealing with, if you're making a, a, a super painterly image or something, you're you're able to kind of disguise a lot more with right. that and and you don't pay attention to even like you know the craft of the thing you're like painting on or you know when you're doing uh something so minimalist um that all of a sudden every detail counts and you have to right. take every single thing into consideration and it's just like 
oh yeah, like the edge of this is now like that side of the painting that nobody used to look at. Now it matters, right. you know, because it's, 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 there's, it's like this pristine object I'm trying to make. And if it's got fingerprints on the side, it ruins everything, you know, like, well, that's, um, one of my favorite things to teach at the shop is you take students and they learn the basics on the wheel, right. Or hand building or something. And then we get to a point where we teach mugs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at no point do I see mugs as fine art, right? It's a craft and, um, and it, it's something that's used every day. And it's this object you kind of forget about, but when you get to the point where you're learning to make it, and you start asking people questions, right? We'll lay out 20 mugs on a table and say, okay, I want you guys to put these in a row from the best mug <laughs> to the worst mug. And they start to argue and, you know, <laughs> without you having to do anything and they're critiquing without knowing it, right? Yeah. And pretty soon you say, well, why is this the best? And they will start to say, well, cause my hand, the way I grab a mug, it fits really well. Well, okay, well, how do you grab a mug? And everyone's different, you know? And uh, when, when I put it to my mouth, it doesn't bump my nose. And when, you know, I hold it, it's pretty lightweight. Or some people say it's, you know, it's hefty. I like the feel of right. that. They, they break it down, and all of a sudden, they see mugs in a completely different way. And that's one of my favorite things to make because it's so personal. And you're putting it to your face every single morning. You know, you interact with it really closely. So as a potter... If you do that well, someone's going to pick your mug as their favorite mug every single morning to have their coffee because for some reason that makes their morning better. And if you screw it up, it is so blatantly obvious, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that's that's kind of that thing where every line, every negative space, every surface all matters in this teeny little object that we don't even give a second thought to because, you know, for the, the last... 40 years, you could get it for almost nothing at the hardware store or, you know, at Walmart now. And yeah, I mean, it breaks it down into this. You, you have to think about your mug and this whole relationship and the experience of using it in a, right. in a much more critical way that you never do because, it, yeah, like you said, it's just second nature. You don't think about it. Yeah, which is actually really nice to see that a ton of people are thinking about it now. The more restaurants are buying yeah. handmade pots, you know, to display their food and they have us design the pots specifically for a dish they're serving because of the color and the shape and everything. And people wanting to know where their plates and dishes come from again, just like they want to know the farmer that's making their stuff instead of it just coming from some unknown part of the world, you know? Yeah, and I... I uh my mom sent me this picture recently of this glass mug that she found at home. And she was like, did you make this? And I was like, yeah, I did. I made it in like the one hot glass class I took in yeah. college. And I was like looking at it and remembering like, oh man, this mug is impossible to drink out of. Yeah. So it like, it made me realize that the, there's so much more into making a mug as well, or just anything you are supposed to actually drink out of because the lip was so fat mm -hmm. that you, if you just drink out of it, you would just end up with water all down the front. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's even, and you think of the flow of liquid and everything. So they go from mugs to pitchers and stuff. And how is the water going to move? And how much does it need to contain? And uh, yeah. you know all of this stuff. So they start to think about their daily lives and that ritual they go through. Yeah. And as I get older, rituals become more important to me. So you know, my daily coffee is 
way more important now than it was 10 years ago. And um, sitting down and having an actual dinner where you made everything and everyone's talking, that's huge, you know, and I want to make sure that I'm doing that as much as possible. And it's all because of that. Just things go so fast that you just miss a bunch of stuff or else you you're not paying attention to what's happening right at that moment and you got to come back to it. So hopefully that's one of the things we go through in pottery is, you know, when you're sitting at the wheel you can only focus on what's in front of you or else it dies, right? It just you can't you can't have your head anywhere else. And so hopefully that translates to the students' daily lives and they they use that. It just made me think when you're talking about, you know, making a dinner, I remember being at your house and of course, like all of your dinner plates you made. Yeah. <laughs> like, it shouldn't be too surprising, but you know, do, is it common for you to like, oh, we really need this thing. Can you make one? Like, is that something you do? Like, instead of just like running out to target, is that like a common thing of like, oh, you know, I really wish this we need a salad bowl, but it's like, it needs to be about this big or I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, we do that a bunch. Now, um, Krista, my wife will tell you though, that the, what we have in our house is all broken or flawed because I sell, <laughs> sell the good stuff. or give away everything else that's good. And so all we have is either great stuff from other potters okay. or my stuff that's cracked and broken and in some way. But yeah, I mean, she says, okay, I want to, compost jar and i want it like this you know and two years later i'll get it (laughs) (laughs) but we do that all the time i mean when i make stuff for a show i always make as much as i possibly can within the time i have and and right before the show we walk through and salt and pepper shakers you know and butter dish and stuff like that we'll pull aside for ourselves to have at the house i like that potters feel a lot more comfortable maybe with like the commerce side of, yeah. of what they do than maybe a lot of fine artists where it's this like a little bit of a tortured relationship with money and like selling the work and, and just like the idea of like making something for an audience that wants this thing to buy it and becoming a commodity or something. And it's just like, you know, there's something also kind of lovely about just being like, well, no, I'm going to make as many of these plates as I can because they sell for this much. Right. <laughs> they make a lot of money. Right. Like, I'm going to make a bunch of them because, like, people want them. And, like, yeah, it's like, why not, you know? Well, we – so um, every year the shop has two big sales. We have a spring sale and a holiday sale. And the reason we started it was not just to have a pottery sale. It was because we had – a ton of students that were to the point where their work was good enough to sell, but they Mm -hmm. didn't know how to do it. Right. So we would do a pricing workshop and then we have 50 of our students at every table in the shop and they're selling work. Right. And they, um, you see the first few times they do this, they sit behind the table with their arms folded, you know, and just hope that someone walks up and says, Oh, I love this and takes it. But with potters, you learn pretty quick that, Yes, if they're if they're comfortable with their work, then what they're talking about is yeah, this is a great play. I made it because you know you these stack really well and thinly, so you can get more in your cabinet without having a problem. Or these bowls, you know, I love the way I carry them around the house. They have a little handle so that you can walk around and and uh, <laughs> switch from the dining room to the back porch with your soup. Or, you know, yeah. they they all have their thing that they're doing with their pottery, and so you see them open up and start to talk about that. Whereas 
when I was painting in grad school and you would think about um, presenting that work, right? You had an idea, you expressed the idea. And for me, I never fully knew whether I got that idea across. So I was... Well, I feel like there's something... I protected it. Almost. Yeah, there's no expectation. And of course, there are people who are like good salesmen of their art in, in that world. Like, But it's just not the same thing. I don't know. Like you're not expected to sort of sell it and maybe because it is practical, you have like more of an angle, but yeah, just thinking of you discussing like the difference of like somebody like sitting quietly with their arms folded, like that is kind of like the default for, I feel like what a painter is supposed to do. Yeah. Almost, is like to be quiet. Yeah. And then like, you know, maybe somebody asks them their thoughts, but they're not going to go up to you and be like, this painting is going to look great above your couch. I'm going to tell you what it's about. Like it's got, uh, you know, the beautiful thing about it is it's so neutral. So you can paint your walls, whatever color you want. Like, That's right. You shouldn't be thinking about such, you know, banal issues as like the yeah. couch color or something, but that's the reality of probably why somebody's going to buy it. Yeah. You know, it's like, they are thinking about it and like, Oh, this would look great in the house. But like, you're not supposed to think about that and you shouldn't be making it for that reason. So, you know, the, the those ideas become vulgar to, to discuss out oh, loud yeah. or, or to even think about, but yeah. So I, I kind of love that you can be so comfortable with that when you're making something that is a commodity, like, well, everyone needs, everyone's got to eat, everyone's got to eat on something. Right. So like, you know, might as well be the stuff I make. Well, and we, potters do live on the fence. I feel like, because, um, you've got that side of it. But then I've had people who walked in and said, Oh my God, you know, when you have make a bigger vase that is really going to just sit in somebody's house, yeah. right? It's not, they're not buying it for anything other than decoration. And they're probably um, not actually going to like put flowers in it or anything exactly. either. It's you like, know, yeah. and they say, Oh, I love that. And then they buy it. And then a couple weeks later they'll call and they'll say, hey, you know, I, I didn't realize it, but it doesn't really match my carpet. Ah! Could I bring it back? Oh. You know, and those people are like, I would like you to trip. Uh, and when break you, it. When you, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, because um, it, it is a lot of it's educating the public on, you know, it is it is kind of a piece of art, even the the functional stuff. And it doesn't need to match what's in your house a lot of times it it can yeah. just be a an object you enjoy and you enjoy using and that doesn't mean that it needs to um color match your counter or something you know so so when we've kind of talked about this like division between the like fine art pottery and uh -huh. the sort of practical and i'm kind of wondering does that does where does that shift happen for you? And does it like slide? Does, does a work ever slide from one to the other? Or you make some, you started making something without knowing what it's going to be. And then it's sort of purpose is revealed to you later. Yeah. I, you know, the, um, my business is mainly getting students to forget all of that and to just learn to make right mm -hmm. first and then we deal with that stuff later with potters when you look at the, some of the best around the world um people would argue that it doesn't matter how nice a plate is it's still a plate right mm -hmm. and it has a function and it's not just a thought-provoking object and so it is out of the fine art realm but i have seen and i continually see masters in ceramics make something um and maybe it is 
by all means a salad bowl, right? Mm -hmm. But the way the glaze was applied, the way it relates to you know nature or the potter surroundings and what it says about what we are um, focused on as a society uh, at mealtime at any given point, you know, our family discussion, all of that can be communicated through a bowl. And some of them are so brilliant that I can't get past it. I think it does slip from this functional, just decorative piece to something more. Um, and when I'm working and stuff, I haven't gotten to that point where I feel like my functional stuff goes to that mm -hmm. level, but I do feel like I've made, um, some thought provoking sculptures out of clay that really, um, let people understand kind of the origins of clay and, um, think about it coming out of the ground and, and what that material looks like in its raw state. And at the same time shows a finish that, um, you know, gives you an emotive response and that type of thing. I feel like, okay, I've done it right. I, this is, this is a piece of art. Um, but I mean, for me, it doesn't happen that often, but <laughs> I, you know, there are, there are people working in clay where I feel like every piece is like that. So you don't, I guess though, what I was curious about too is do you, when you sit down, is there usually a definite plan of what kind of thing you're going to make, like, and where it sits on that line, like which side of it is it going to be on? Um, I always leave room for it to cross that line. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, yeah, I get an idea of, of what the piece should look like, but at the same time, just like when you're sketching, I sketch on the wheel, right? So when you're sketching and the, that idea can develop on mm -hmm. the page, I, I'm watching the pot change all the time and picking up on certain lines that I love that that mimic something else or that relate to something else in the outside world. And then I'll maybe change course, pick up on that and emphasize that. And so the, the pot does change a lot as I'm working on it and, and deviates from the picture I had in my head at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it can definitely do that. But, um, I don't work in a way that those artists who hit on a great piece all the time work in which they have this design in their head. They have a concept and they're driving toward that concept. And then once they've made that piece and they're somewhat happy with it, they make 20 more and slightly alter mm -hmm. until it's become this new thing. I, um, I don't know whether it's my the patience that it takes to do that or um, just the focus to stick with something for that long. There are marks I make that I've stuck with my whole career, uh, but there's certain concepts that I just can't take for that long. And, and so that's why I feel like it eludes me a lot. Have you ever had something where a kind of accident has taken something from functional to non-functional and then thus turned it into sort of like sculpture. Oh yeah. And you have to pay attention <laughs> to that because I'm constantly trying to get the clay to move some organic fun way that just right. seems so natural. And a lot of times that comes from an accident that comes from a mistake early on. And if you spot it, and then can find the balance to emphasize it because if it's if it's crazy and the whole pot's crazy, 
you lose that it's crazy, right? You right. need something to compare it to. So right. there has to be control and sections of that. So if I can spot it early enough and think, oh, that was not as bad as I thought. This is actually really exciting. Now let's turn it into the star of the piece. Yeah. Then I can make that work for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Well, are you ready to go look at some art? Yes. Awesome. Absolutely. All right. We are uh, looking at contemporary, this is like a little display of contemporary Japanese ceramics. Um, and this is actually the second installation we did. Uh, there was another group of things in here, including there was actually a piece of fashion in here earlier, but then they traded that out and, and reinstalled these. So these have been out for a little while, but they're relatively new to me. Um, and so I didn't want to look at any one particular thing. I thought we could just like, I don't know, you pick something out, like what stood out to you at first, and then we'll just kind of walk around and see what, what stands out to you. Well, the centerpiece stands out first just because you've yeah. got this hugely spread out, almost uh, muscle or oyster shell-like piece. Yeah, it's called you know? Shell 16 Incubation. Yeah, and it's got fantastic lines and texture which move your eye around the piece but the fact that they broke those seams where the slabs come together and let the intense blue color from the interior pop out at the edges of the lines oh, um, i didn't oh it's actually so it's it's the on the other side i see it's like poking through i couldn't tell actually if i was looking at a hole there or yeah the edge but yeah so i see it's actually like you see those corners how they yeah. split and let you see the interior and that framing of the color and then where the texture can just come right off of the edge it's pretty amazing and it automatically draws your eye in makes you just sit there for a minute and really pay attention to what's going on with the piece it's got that warm color tone to it so it it brings you to a, a spot you visited or whatever or it's just a calming thing but also kind of energetic and yeah. um i don't know I, I i went to that immediately because yeah. i've held those shells in my hand multiple times i've you know i've interacted with that in my entire life but then to see it large scale and really magnetize or uh, uh, magnify all the lines so that you can see what that would look like on a big scale is pretty fun yeah this one is so like i don't know it's it's almost like the lines and the shapes can almost be a little disorienting too as you look at like it's it it becomes very graphic in the way this like big blue shape that I'm looking at now just kind of flattens out almost. And I don't know, I, it, the, the way the lines are kind of pulling you into the center in this kind of optical illusion-y type way as well, like the, the way the lines are kind of crossing on each other and then coming to these edges, it's like, yeah, it's really complicated. There's a lot of things happening in it. Well, and a lot of times with uh, contemporary Japanese work, I find myself wanting to have this as something so big that I could, you know, climb in it or climb it. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like you can hike through that. Yeah. And a lot of the pieces that you find in this grouping are that way. Uh, they, you just want to be small enough that you can jump in there and spend the day hiking and exploring. And that's how, how much it relates to the natural world. And that's where they are truly masters. 
at using the clay to expose that. Yeah, it's so even the yeah the the way the lines kind of form on the inside too. Those sort of little like bubbly ridges that are formed. You know, like how do they how did they make that? You know, like how the the little bubbles kind of form in those ridges. Is that something they actually did? Do you think? Yeah, or? that's actual texture in the clay. So they okay. they've pressed um, this grit in the clay, and then the glaze will pull away from the little sand bits okay. or, or what we call grog and it'll create a little pocket so you'll have chunks coming out of the clay plus the glaze pulling away gives you that look and then they put a lot of glaze in there that moves so it pools in the bottom and literally turns to just this nice section of glass in the bottom of this so it's highly reflective and looks just like you're you're looking into a pool yeah there's a lot of great things going on with like the the relationship between those two surfaces you're kind of talking at the beginning about those little like pops of blue that happen on those edges there where the slabs come together yeah um but just even that relationship between this like flatter kind of dull gray that's like matte against this so intense blue that is right. shiny so it's both like a color contrast and a texture contrast um and that's that's like gives it so much more depth, I think, because of those things happening here. You got it. And, and when you see painters playing with that push and pull and messing with uh, your ability to see what's behind the painting, what's in front of the painting, what's on the surface, yeah. they get to do this uh, in an extreme way with the 3D form. And it also makes you think, I mean, we see architecture mimicking uh, nature all the time where staircases look like the spiral of a shell and things right. like that. Well, when you use these lines to really see what a grand form this is, even though, you know, in the natural world, this would be tiny. It, uh, it really kind of opens your eyes to, um, what you might find just walking around. The only thing that really bums me out about this piece, honestly, is that I want to be able to walk to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> because we are, it is in a case and we can't do that. You know, it seems like the perfect piece that you would want to be able to see from both sides. Um, uh, so I, I'm really curious. I, I'm assuming this part that we're seeing, you know, we would see a smaller little bit of blue if we were on the other side. It would be a little more gray. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure this is probably the most interesting side, but I, I'm curious to see how it feels to walk around it and how even like when I get to like this far, this side, I mean, it does feel really different when you get over here. Well, and actually. they're all, a lot of the pieces in this case are what you would say is, I don't know, monumental pieces, right? Yeah. They, they have a presence that's so much bigger than their actual physical size. And so all of those I think are really fun to be able to walk around and compare to the size of a room. So yeah, the case is a little limiting, but, um, but you can definitely see that they have some impact. Yeah. Even yeah. On this one side. The other one that just like, I'm really fascinated by, and I haven't looked at it too much. And, uh, is this one right here, right? It's right next to it called flower sculpture, uh, Shingu, uh, Sayaka. And it's just like, it's, it's one of these things that's like a little bit of a, a trick to me of like, whoa, that's all ceramic. Well, and um, <laughs> like it doesn't. And but the I'll, I'll describe since you can't see it um, that uh, the there's like all these little thin. Um, I don't know. What would you even call it? Like hair like. Yeah. Pieces coming out of it that just you don't see in ceramic because they would just be so fragile, I would assume. Well, and 
that is a, a big movement in ceramics where um, not only that, but also just adding other materials to it to make you question the clay pieces. So you see the pinched out edge that's so fragile and changes yeah. so much all the way along the outside that contains this yeah. soft looking material in the middle. Um, those edges, you, you kind of almost uh, forget them when you look at something that's just... Um, clay colored and you know you're walking up to a clay sculpture right because in your head that's already that's a hard substance it's right. fired and it's done but when you add those other elements it makes you question that and you can get away with making clay look very soft even in its fired state yeah no it's it it's so this piece is so full of movement like and it's interesting just next to this one even though it's called flower sculpture it also really makes me think of sea life yeah as well like they both have this really strong relationship to the sea and this one is almost like one of those kind of weird mixes of like plant or animal that you see in the ocean where you're like i don't even know what the, what to call this is it a plant is it an animal like exactly it, yeah you've seen jellyfish and anemones and squid and all that put together and and you get something like this where yeah. all of it looks like it could move yeah it almost has these like ten these black tentacles on the back end that you can almost imagine it kind of like shooting you know down as it like kind of pushes itself across the ocean or something you know well and uh clay is a wonderful material for that because it is meant to be approachable, right? So most art in your head is like, don't touch, right? You know, whereas clay, we've known as functional things, and so they're meant to be picked up and used. And so you already have that in the back of most people's head is that this is more approachable than other art. And so a lot of artists will play off of that hmm. and um, and really bring the viewer in even closer than, than you would for a painting or drawing. Yeah. Anything else pop out to you in, uh, in this case? Yeah, so, you know, we talked earlier about making things uh, mimic the natural world mm -hmm. um, and, and bringing the beauty out that way. So one thing that I love about ceramics is that once you're done with the making process, you have to get to the firing process. Right. And playing with fire is all kinds of fun anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and with a lot of this work, you're working with wood ash. So it's a big wood kiln. And when you fire in a, a kiln like this, the wood that's being burnt in there creates fly ash, really small particles from the burnt wood. And that flies down the kiln, sticks to the pot, and then depending on how the pot is turned or sitting in the kiln, that, that fly ash will turn to glass. The kiln gets so hot, it turns to glass, and then will get pulled by the draft across the pot. And so you can see on the surface of several of these pots, you can read the flame basically. Yeah. So you can see where other pots were sitting in front of this one on the back left, this slab piece that's wrapped around a cylinder. And you can see where um, they had little pieces of clay called wadding sitting on the surface that the flame zipped around. So those little highlights there were protected and the flame zipped around them and carried the ash, which are the darker halos around that. Oh, wow. And uh, so you can get an idea of the, it, it gives you an idea of the extreme heat and conditions that these things were sitting in, almost like they were born from a volcano or something, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that tradition, I mean, the Japanese are so good with this firing technique. And some people can spend their entire lives just focusing on how one kiln operates. And when they master that kiln, they can direct every bead of ash and get those layers of color depending on the different types of wood they're firing with. And instead of using glaze, which 
floors me. And so yeah. to see things that that look like a, a master of glaze would have put together and knowing that they're just doing that using the different types of wood, the heat, how they hold temperatures at certain points in the firing and how it's cooled down, that blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, that that kind of also reminds me of this like so this piece on the end that's called Wind. Yes. Um is I don't know. It seems to have is, is some of this coloration that's happening there in in that same kind of process you're talking about, where we have these highlights and then these darker areas. Absolutely. You also. think of that wood ash zipping down the kiln, and wherever there's a surface cutting out, mm -hmm. it you know blocks the ash, whereas it pulls around other sections that are slightly more exposed. And so, with that, you're getting the process of those drainage caverns, you know, that lead into the Grand Canyon or those right. crazy windswept. Uh, locations where you think uh, you see what happened over millions of years right. and you can't believe it. And this potter has done that in a matter of, you know, uh, several hours. Right. That's what I, I was uh, thought this is. So when you were describing that, it, it made me appreciate this piece on a whole new level because I was like, oh, that's so cool because you're describing the way these like kind of natural elements are going to help color this piece in this very like natural way. And then they're using that to create this almost mimicry of those um, yeah, wind eroded forms you see in nature. And, and yeah. yeah, it like has such a great relationship to that, that it's such a smart way to work. Um, yeah, and it does, again, it gives it that monumental feel you were talking about, like you're bringing up the Grand Canyon and, yeah. and, and you know, the American West is what it makes me think of right. immediately too. Um, well, and that's fun that they are doing this technique called faceting, which is where they're cutting that surface of the clay mm -hmm. uh, to make it mimic what they might see right around their, their shop, you know, whether it's right. the, the sheer side of a cliff or a rock formation. And yet, you know, you can relate to that here just because of the things you've experienced in the Midwest or right down at Red River Gorge or something like that. It's all... Um, you know, it, that's a universal thing that everyone can pick up on. And then you look at the color of this central piece, you know, and it even makes more sense. This because, is a horse we're looking at right now. And we stand on red clay almost anywhere we dig in this area. There's that earthenware, like a lower temp reddish orange clay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the the rock that you see in a lot of locations here has that same glow to it. And so even though that was made with a different part of the world in mind, it uh, directly relates to what we see when we go hiking right yeah. around in this area. Wow. Yeah, I love that piece too. Just it's, you know, it's name horse um, is, is so, it makes this piece a little more playful than I maybe would have, if you just saw it, I mean, it, it, you might come up with that relationship to an animal. Um, but, you know, the idea of these like this big fat, <laughs> legs yeah. almost it's really funny to me now it's like it's such a a cool abstraction of a horse even this like little tiny edge that just becomes like a butt oh exactly <laughs> well and and before you see the title you know that that doorway seems so striking you know mm. just like you're at petra or something and and this uh, you know, building is carved into the side of a mountain mm -hmm. you can see that amazing doorway right there and imagine yourself walking through that and seeing how big the cliff walls are beside you yeah. and the same thing with that notch it's just enough to say a person did this right, right. and then you get the name and everything has a different meaning all yeah. of a sudden it's so fun 
Yeah, it's, it's it does change it. It's funny because I, I maybe I'd already I'd already read this name. So when you're talking about these kind of monumental pieces, yeah. I didn't think about it in that way. But um, now that you bring up Petra and stuff, like oh yeah, this does would feel like almost like Stonehenge or something too. This like shape, um, but then to have it become animal, yeah, <laughs> sort of so so funny. I I was looking when we were down on the other end here. This vase. I was thinking we were talking about pieces that probably someone might look at and go, well, I could do that. And this is one that uh, I feel like probably a lot of visitors might look at this and say, well, I could do that. And uh, there are a few things that you want to know about um, number three here, just titled Vase, is that wars have been fought over that glaze. So yeah, what? in, in Asian culture, the, these glazes that were being developed, and then that would be on every vase and bowl in a, a certain dynasty. The, these glazes are so important and it shows like technological advancement, you know, mm -hmm. to a, in a culture. And so when you have a, a beautiful, elegant glaze that can be fired to a very high temperature and get very hard so that um, the durability is there and it's going to endure for years and years and years. And it's sitting on this rough porcelain form that porcelain uh, on the other side there is this delicate, almost machine-made looking pot. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what porcelain has almost always been used for is these beautiful bone china plates. But here they're showing that porcelain is beautiful when you tear it and fold it and pull at it. It is just like uh, the rock formations that some of these other stoneware pieces are are going towards. So they're making a comment on that and also uh, bringing the history of ceramics in this region all together. In in, in a form like this that shows not just the history uh, of that culture and that glaze, but also their mastery of that glaze and their understanding of where porcelain comes from. Is there any other last pieces? Uh, you want anything else you want to talk about? Well, um, when you get down to this one, number 11, that does is so pristine. This and, is just and, called a vessel. Uh, yeah, and perfect. It's it's one of those things where even the one beside it to the left, uh, number nine, you you see a potter or a sculptor who has spent their life with one material or one glaze and has gotten so good at it that uh, there you just can't you can't find a flaw. It's it's pretty amazing to see, and um, it's just one of those things where you're either going to let things flow and you're going to enjoy the process, or um, or you're going to do something that just most of the world can't do. And those guys are are in that realm. Where... Yeah, I, I'm just reading. I had never, I hadn't, I had not paid attention to this uh, this vessel. Um, and I was just reading the label and it says how it was like thrown on a wheel and then carved after that. And it's like, if you told me this was like a cast piece, I would believe it. Right. right. Like it looks so perfect that it doesn't feel like any sort of hands were involved in it. Well, and I don't know whether a lot of the people who come to the museum and look at uh, the ceramic work know a huge amount about the working of the material, but clay has what we call a memory. And so if I roll out a slab or I throw a pot and at some point in the process, I accidentally bend it, mm -hmm. right? Even though I fix it, 
when I put it back in the kiln to fire it, it wants to return to that flexed point where I bent it. It has a memory. So um, if, if you're making tiles and you pull the tile, the slab, off of the table, then when it dries, it will bend to try and return to that stretched movement. And so the idea that he has taken this, thrown it on the wheel, um, carved the form, and there is no, no line that is not perfectly symmetrical you know Um, there's no warping in the firing process there's not a stain how many times do you get something on your finger that you don't realize and touch the clay and this is a a surface that anything will stain (laughs) and stain deep to where you can't sand it out sometimes yeah so it's just everything about that process was perfect and someone who has spent their entire life working with one material and knows everything about it. Yeah, it's other, It's really otherworldly. Like, it, it really does look like something that, if, again, if you had said it was, like, 3D printed or something, yeah, I yeah. would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that tracks. Like, right. It, d- just, <laughs> it does not look like the material. It's it's this total, like, kind of beautiful subversion of the, of the material almost. Well, and that's hard to find these days, actually. Someone who, you know, the Japanese, some might devote their entire life to a Shino glaze and doing everything that one glaze can do. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, because of all the commercial companies, you got 7,000 glazes to choose from. So you never really zone in on just one or two that you're going to devote your life to. And that's what a lot of these artists did. And you can see it. And, and you can't see it in very many other places in the world. While we're kind of over on this edge, I, I was just looking down at this uh, dish here that's, uh, uh, I'm probably going to spoil this name, Neriyagi dish, dizziness. Um, and wait, hold, hold on, let me say that again. Oh, I got it right. Neriyagi. I did it. Look, it was spelled out and I got it right. Neriyagi dish, dizziness. Um, and we were talking about that point when a plate has crossed into fine art. <laughs> right. And this is, you know, most of these pieces feel like, you know, they're, they're pretty firmly in the, the fine art realm. Like this one is, is interesting because, because of its shape, it still holds on to that function of like a dish or a plate. Um, but then it definitely feels like it's crossed that line. <laughs> well, in, in its simplest form, this technique, uh, right, you could take two different colored clays and uh, squish them together and then put them on the potter's wheel and pull, and you would expect that maybe the darker clay would swirl through the lighter clay mm-hmm. and the spinning of the wheel. But what if you took several different um coloring materials, whether mason stains or oxides, and wedged them into porcelain so that your clay became black and soft gray and dark gray and light white, you know, and and then you intricately cut slabs and blocks and stack them back together in a way that when you create a piece, it makes an intricate pattern. I mean, I can't even imagine the time it takes to do that and to do it with that perfection, but that's what's happening there. So, yeah, that's crazy. So you're, I'm looking at the the layers, and so you, if you look at a, a sh- just pick a stripe, and you can kind of see where it's like a little bit the light to dark is like softer and yeah. stuff, you know, you can tell like that's where the clay was sort of butted up against each other and, and then kind of cut into slices and then stacked so that those 
colors are kind of alternating. Is that right. what's happening? Yeah, and you would have to redo these um, geometric forms over and over and over again in this cube of clay until when you slice through it, it became that pattern. And yeah. how, how much practice does it take to do that? I would guess 20 years of trying that thing. Well, and <laughs> it, it, you get it, it really, it has this weird effect that um, it feels like it's reflective. Yeah. And I don't think it is. Like, I think it is just simply the, the strangeness of the, the colors kind of uh, gradating into each other that right. create that uh, illusion of some sort of like reflection happening. Like, yeah. it feels like, like, oh, yeah, it's, like, shiny and stuff, but I don't think it is. No, it's not. It's, yeah. it's amazing. And, <laughs> and using that subtle curve to allow that to happen is yeah. really cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming out and looking at some pottery with me, Ben. No problem. This was always, uh, always an entertaining place to be. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Anna England, Kinship, and William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance. Join us on Sunday, February 25th, for Gallery Experience, Walk a Mile in the Museum. In honor of Heart Health Month, we will take a one-mile tour of the Cincinnati Art Museum. Enjoy artwork, admire architecture, and tell stories, all while adding to a healthy lifestyle. This program is totally free. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. And while you're there, check out some images of the work we discussed today. Go to events and programs, and then scroll down to Art Palace Podcast. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and even join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofrand Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes. If I'm starting to sound desperate for people to like me, it's only because it's true. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. Music